and welcome back everybody to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This is the second of our little mini-series looking at first at the strategy about independence. Part one is on our YouTube channel and our podcast and looked at what the debate was and what was decided. This is the second in our mini-series. In this episode, we are chatting with three SNP members who were at the conference And we should just say Scottish Independence Podcast, not party political. We weren't at the conference. This really is asking people who were there to give us their impressions and what they thought. Really grateful to them for being prepared to come and chat to us. So three guests are Liz Lowry, who is Secretary of the Almond and Ern branch of SNP. Jackie Jensen, who is an SNP member and, and yes, activist. And the third guest is Simon Barrow, and he is Secretary of the SNP Trades Union Group. We split the discussion up into themes. So the kind of themes that um, came out of the discussion, well, First of all, their immediate reaction, but also a lot of discussion about the Constitutional Convention, also some thoughts about what the election strategy might be and what it might be like with Labour in power at Westminster. And finally, whether they were optimistic for the future. So really good discussion. Great to have the guests there. Thank you very much to them for joining us. Here it is in a nutshell. We asked all of our guests for their first reactions to the conference, starting with Liz. We've got Liz Lowry and uh, Liz Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks very much for having me, ladies. It's much appreciated to get a chance to speak on your podcast. Yeah, I was at the conference and the majority of people like myself, although there was numerous very good resolutions, I think most people were most interested in the indie part of the day. Now, originally there had been given about an hour and 40 minutes for the debate, but in the morning it was decided that because it was such an important part of our uh, conference and there were so many people that wanted to speak, and also because there were so many numerous resolutions, amendments, um, they extended the time so I was very happy that that happened. The main resolution was obviously the resolution presented by Humza Yusuf, the First Minister, and Stephen Flynn, the Deputy. The main contention with this resolution that some people felt was that they were going for seats rather than votes cast. Now, there was a sleuth of amendments Amendment A, which asked for a transfer of powers. Now, some people were not uh, that keen on this because we don't think, or a, a group of us did not think that this will come to pass. However, Amendment A was passed. Amendment B, which was the renewed independence campaign, nobody could not support that, so it was passed. Amendment C, which was a very important one, was the description of the ballot paper. It was passed by a claim. When something's passed by a claim at our conference, it means that nobody spoke against that. Amendment D was the Constitutional Convention. Again, that was passed. Nobody was against that. And Amendment E, the majority of seats for the SNP was passed overwhelmingly. However, there were some people that spoke against 
that because they believed it should be the majority of votes. Now, the two amendments that failed was Amendment F, which was the majority of votes for pro-independence parties. Now, this was one that was originally backed by Joanna Cherry and the SNP trade union group, which is the largest um, kind of affiliate group to the SNP. However, before this resolution came to pass, Joanna Cherry and the trade union group withdrew. However, there were still a couple of people within conference that spoke to it, and I personally voted for it. It was overwhelmingly defeated by the majority of members there. It's really helpful having that kind of blow-by-blow blow account of, of what happened. I'm sure that's going to help people understand the process that went through. So you're saying you voted in favour of those two amendments that were saying we shouldn't be going for a majority or a, the number of seats, it should be the number of votes. And that's referring to next year's general election. So there's a lot of statements about how if you do that, I don't think anyone used this phrase, but it was kind of like, well, you're fighting a battle with one hand tied behind your back. Every other party in Britain who takes part in that general election, they're going to say, oh, OK, we won the election because we've got a majority of seats. Mm -hmm. Even at first past because why do you think it would have been better to have had the majority of votes? I think it would have been better to have the majority of votes because we originally would have supported the Joanna Cherry thing, which said that all independent supporting parties' votes would count. So, for example, the Green Party votes would count because they're never going to get an MP. Well, who knows? Anything could happen. And although it might be difficult at times to consider working with them as a thing, votes for Alba Party would also have counted. This is just my personal opinion. The way I look at it now, anybody that's an independent supporter in the next general election should not be voting Green or Alba because it's kind of been closed down. People will vote for the party they support. However, a vote for a Green or a vote for an Alba Party now is not going to count towards getting the majority of seats for independence. And it basically now, the way things are, we just need to convince people that they need to vote SNP if they want independence to continue. The other thing about it that concerns me is if they don't get the majority, I think it's got to be 29. If they don't get that, then what's going to happen with the Indy? They can always go again in the Scottish election, but I think a lot of people, not myself, but I think a lot of people are disheartened now, and if this happens, you do wonder where it's, where it's going to go from there. Yeah, I, I mean, that point that you made there, I, that's the one that concerns me. I'm not in any party. But that point you made about the SNP's strategy really means you can only vote for SNP. From people outside the SNP, that is just going to reinforce the perception they have that the SNP is only in it for their own power. Now, you could say, but that's what we need in order to become independent. But a lot of the criticism that the SNP has had from the wider movement. Yeah, that kind of line of thinking is certainly quite prevalent just now, isn't it? Mm -hmm. in, well, at least in social media. I mean, who knows if it's very well, prevalent amongst people who are not very politically engaged or geeky, as it were. That was really interesting hearing your way of thinking on that. 
Simon Barrow gives his first reactions. Overall, I think I'd say that we were probably in that situation where nobody would have wanted to start where we started, not only because we've taken a battering in recent times, but because there's been really quite widespread disagreement about how to achieve a strategic perspective on independence, given where we are at the moment. And I think the outcome of the debate was, well, certainly that the vote was very solidly in favour of the amended resolution put forward by Hamza Yousaf with a number of uh, amendments attached to it. It was a very, very solid vote for that. The debate reflected wider diversity. And I think what that tells you is that a lot of people want to pull together, even if they continue to have some disagreements. And I think many people at the end of the Nicholas Sturgeon era rather thought that we were in the end game. And it was a question of how we made some final moves and we began to, to move across the line and so on. What has been discovered, I think, and it's a very uncomfortable discovery for many people within the independence movement more widely, as well as the SNP, is that we're not nearly there, actually. And the reality that we need to face is that in the time that's elapsed since the 2014 referendum, in which I, I along with others, was proud to vote yes, but we were a minority, we have increased a little bit support for independence. But in spite of Brexit, in spite of Boris Johnson, in spite of the chaos of Westminster, in spite of powers being challenged uh, in their use by the Scottish Parliament from the UK, in spite of all those and many other things, we haven't got over the 50% mark on any consistent basis. And if you look at the voters' priorities when it comes to elections, the priority for independence is between 5 and 19% on pretty well all polling at the moment. And that indicates we've got an awful lot of work to do. And I think that's difficult because people felt that they were much closer and so it's very easy for people to fall out because of that. So what I think we've done is pull together behind a strategy, which actually I think is more about shorter term tactics, how we face the next general election, how we begin to, to regroup ourselves, how we begin to reframe independence for a fresh offer for the Scottish people. And I think we, we achieved that reasonably at that conference, but there's an awful lot more work to do. And we, of course, have to drill into some of the detail of what, what was and what was not agreed uh, during that debate. Last comment I'd make on the debate is that it really did, I think, cover the span of opinions from those, I think, who, who realise we are in something of the situation that I've described and that we cannot specify what the end moves will be at the moment. What we can specify is what we should do next. I mean, I do think there are some people who think that there is or could be what I would almost describe as a kind of magic solution to this. I mean, someone got up and made a speech and said we should simply pass a motion uh, repealing the 1707 Act of Union, and if the Scottish Parliament did that, then we would become independent. It was all very, very straightforward. It's, it's nothing like that. That's nowhere near reality. But emotionally, it's where some people feel. Well, there's quite a lot of that talked about. Well, at least yeah. on social media, there's quite yeah. a lot of that talked about. But actually, to be fair, there's also, you know, actives on the ground calling meetings and talking about that yeah. kind of thing, various versions of that. And I've never been convinced by any of it. I mean, if it was that simple, we could have done it a long time ago. But but I do understand the emotional, yes. the emotional, what's behind that. And, you know, I sympathise with that. And there's, there's frustration, more than frustration, there's kind of, anger at somehow why hasn't it happened already you know and you, you kind of think well events you know a lot of events have happened that no one foresee even from 2016 onwards now the initial reaction from our third guest jackie jensen i didn't go with an open mind because i had already had a view 
the seats rather than votes were a way to go. But I thought it was really, really important for the party to have a debate about it. And when I saw the agenda, I thought, mm, an, hour, an hour and a half, an hour and a quarter, you know, is that long enough? And actually it went on for nearly two and a half hours. It was getting to the stage where people had had enough of the debate then, they just wanted to vote, you could see it. Um, and you could see that the, the room was behind the resolution with the amendments. So when it came to the opposing resolutions, the, the room just wasn't there with them um, at yeah. all. But it was really, really important that that debate took place, that we had the option to sound out what what are the pros and cons of each of the, the ways that we're going. So it was a, I felt it was a really strong debate. I was really glad we had it and I was glad it took the time it took. And Joanna Cherry stood down from her resolution, but I thought it was really important and other of the members actually talked to it as well as Pete Wishart talking to his. Yeah, the, the two that were about going for votes rather than seats. And I absolutely understand where they're coming from. Um, you know, we, need a con we will need a confirmatory vote at some point before anything happens. I absolutely get that. But if we're playing the rules of Westminster, we've got to play the rules of Westminster. And that's really all we've got left. And I think given ourselves a barrier that none of the other parties in the general election have, would be really, really difficult. And, and it's virtually never been achieved. So I really felt that that was tying our hands behind our back. I'm a, a member of the Believe in Scotland steering group, and we had put our resolution to conference, just a wee group of us, SNP members of the Believe in Scotland steering group, and it was um, seats and votes. You know, this is, this is the route we'd take if it was seats, and this is the route we'd take if we managed to get the majority of votes. And that resolution never got through, but I was really pleased that the two bits of that had got discussed at conference. It was a bit of a surprise to me just how how unanimous it was. You know, there were there were virtually only a handful of people putting cards up for the uh, votes resolutions, and I didn't think it would be that much of a, a win for Hamza's resolution, but it absolutely was, and I think it was him negotiating and discussing the amendments which made the difference. You know, his willingness to listen to people and their points of view were really important. The next topic is the Constitutional Convention. So this was a subject matter to one of the amendments in the debate. It was actually proposed and spoken for by Joanna Cherry. And when Joanna Cherry spoke, she went into it in, in some more detail. One of the things that struck me was that she said at the end, of course, as well as having MPs and MSPs of whatever party who wanted to be part of it and have people from Civic Scotland. Civic Scotland would include representatives of some of the smaller indie supporting parties who may not at that point have any elected members, but there's still a presence in the indie movement, clearly. Can we go back to Liz Lowry for her thoughts? So the one that now has been accepted about setting up a constitutional convention I noticed that she referred quite a lot to bringing everybody in. How do you feel about that one? I think if they set up the Constitutional Convention, they're looking for all the people right across Scotland, politicians, trade unions, and representatives from all groups. So I think that is a very good idea because they do need to have the majority of people of Scotland on board with these things. 
there'll obviously be unionists that will never like the idea of us being independent. However, the wider um, the net is cast to get everybody involved and their views and opinions, I think, is a very good idea. She obviously said it would be open to any MP or MSP of whatever party mm-hmm. to take part in it. But then she was also then went on to say, plus there should be representatives from any independent supporting party, which I, I kind of assumed she said that to take on board, there might be some, might well be some of the very smaller ones who, you know, who won't have any representatives, maybe even after the next Holyrood election. Mm-hmm. That seemed to me to be a pretty good invitation to everybody. I think Joanna Cherry is absolutely 100% correct. To me, the SNP is the main vehicle that's going to try and get us to independence. However, there are a lot of other people who are pro-independence who are not SNP. Some of these people will never want to be SNP. That's their choice, but they are as important as well as SNP people when it comes to getting us over the line to get the majority of people in the country to to be pro-independence. And it happened before in uh, 2014. There were so many different groups. There was the radical independence. There was a, a whole raft of groups that sprung up out of basically out of nowhere. And they all, although they all had their own aims and ambitions, the primary thing that everybody wanted was independence. We, we need to get everybody to come together, basically, in, in, my, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, one, one of the things with the 2014 situation, though, I think a lot of people had never given it any thought until suddenly you realised you were going to have to make a choice because the referendum was going to happen. I mean, I didn't even notice it was going to happen until about three months before. <laughs> just oh my completely goodness. oblivious. I think we're probably, I probably wasn't the only one in that book. But you can kind of see why all these groups sprung up. And a lot of the, the passion and the interesting discussions that people were having was because they were thinking about it for the first time. And you could kind of see the, the interest there. But I think this time around, because there isn't this event yet, we haven't managed to get a, a vote even in sight now that we're not using the general election as a referendum. I'm not sure that there's the same impetus for people to really give it any serious thought until they're forced to. So I don't know if that's going to make it more Mm. difficult to get people involved in a constitutional convention when it's a kind of hypothetical discussion until there's a realistic prospect. It's a good point, isn't it, about it's given people something to vote for. Maybe that's something that needs to be taken on board. It's not quite so much a thing to vote for when it's not in itself a definitive referendum. I hope that the intention is to get the Constitutional Convention up and running as soon as possible. Just get it underway and that will maybe give some people something to focus on. I think the draft constitution, if we could get a discussion about that, that would be really good because it sort of pulls people in. Because even though we maybe don't know when this is going to happen, you're starting to really nail down what kind of country do we want to be. It's not a good look, I think, to stand back and say, no, it's perfect exactly as it is. I refuse to have any discussions, which is what you'd be forced into that position if you're not going to take part in a a draft constitution. And Simon's thoughts on the Constitutional Convention. 
I actually think we need a constitutional convention as soon as we can reasonably pull one together and that it should be a convention not simply about independence but about Scotland's future with all the options on the table and not just with independence supporters there from civil society and from political parties but actually to regalvanize within Civic Scotland a discussion about where power needs to lie and in whose hands it should be in order to affect the kind of transformation that we want to see for our nation. If, if we pose the question in those terms, I think we might start to have a more fruitful debate and people might start to see why the powers that come with independence are essential. But if you start with are you yes or are you no? An awful lot of people have made up their mind about that and it's like playing another game of chess where people will, will make very predictable moves or other people are bored or annoyed by the question. It doesn't really get you anywhere. But if the question is about power and who holds it and where it should lie and how it specifically applies to those kinds of issues that affect people's daily lives like housing and education and environment and economy and jobs and all of those kinds of things, what, what is possible and what do we want, then I think we can reframe the debate. And a constitutional convention would be one way of doing that. I'd also like to see a much bigger debate within the trade union movement. Sounds like you're thinking of it as being itself a vehicle to help people look into the different concerns and, and, and get a greater understanding right. of it. And, and that strikes me as more of a sea change than I'd quite taken on board. Because, you know, you could have um, whoever it's going to be, it's not going to be just the SNP and it's not even just ScotGov, but, you know, a representative body of, of Scots saying, OK, then we're going to set up meetings across Scotland and we, and we want to talk to you about what you want to see doing, done about housing or just to give it an, an example, or it might be um, land reform, or whatever. That could be a really exciting setup if we could manage to get that going. Well, indeed it could. But again, there are a number of components that you brought into play there, and we, we need a conversation about how things might happen. The first thing to say is that what I set out a few moments ago is not actually SNP policy. As you rightly identified, uh, Joanna Cherry's amendment was saying at the point where we are in a position to go and talk about independence with the UK government, we want civic society to be involved, not just um, politicians. And I think that's important. But I think it would be far better if that moment arose from an existing wide conversation, a big conversation about Scotland and its future. And I think a constitutional convention or a convention on the future of Scotland is something that needs to emerge itself from civil society with the involvement of political parties, unions, religious and faith groups, community organisations, etc, etc. But I don't actually think it's something that can just be built by certainly by one political party. Yeah. But the idea of that really, in a sense, reflects back to what happened, you know, around the time of devolution when a constitutional convention emerged that began to shift uh, opinion and create a consensus around a way forward. We don't have that consensus now, so the role of a convention would be to actually get people to bring and put their cards on the table as to what they thought the future was. And independence would be a key part of that, but people would bring other ways forward as well if they, if they wanted to. Uh, and so I think a bigger public conversation about Scotland's future, given that we're in a logjam situation, would be really good. And as I say, the initiative needs to come 
from civil society with the cooperation of political parties and others. And Jackie's thoughts on a constitutional convention? When I saw it was there, I thought that's a significant shift. And, and it was obvious that Holmes and Stephen were accepting it. Tell us what you think about that one. Well, I thought it was really, really important. Um, and it was in the Believe in Scotland resolution that didn't get through. And I'm, I'm quite committed to it. You know, I, I don't believe that we should have a constitution that's top down. I believe that we should have a, a constitution that's created through a constitutional convention that's bottom up. But I do think the constitutional convention should be much more than the constitution. That was the proposal that was put to conference. It was looking at the Scotland that we are going to create. And I was really, really impressed by that. Uh, I thought Joanna Cherry spoke really well to it. And I think there's an ownership of it. I think the discussion still to be had is when. Yes. Um, and I think the conversation in the SM, uh, around the SNP leadership, I believe, is after we get the vote, then we set up a constitutional convention. My preference would be that we'd done it now and we started talking about the consti- a, a possible constitution of what a future Scotland could look like now, you know, in the new year, rather than waiting to a point in time. I agree with you. I, I would like to see that at least getting ready on the shelf now, even if we're not actually actively using it now. One of the points that uh, we were mulling over and we noticed that Stephen Flynn had really taken off the table any idea that there might be an abstentionist, as he put it, you know, MPs walking out. You know, if we try and have conversations with Westminster and they refuse to negotiate. And I was wondering whether the, having the Constitutional Convention there gives us an alternative vehicle. Because I think if they say no, something has to happen. Otherwise, we're just accepting it. And if you've got something that says, well, okay, even two days a week, our MPs are going to be in this forum here because that's what the people have voted for them to do. And I think if if we're only getting around to thinking about, oh, let's set up a constitutional convention after the next election, that's long enough for it to fade away into the the long grass. Now is probably a good time to capitalise on the fact there seems to be general agreement and support for it. And that's a really important point, actually. I think there's, there's a couple of questions, isn't there? Should our MPs leave Westminster? And Stephen Flynn, you're right, was absolutely categorical about that, that he didn't believe that he, he should leave Scotland without a voice in Westminster because goodness knows what they do to us. The reality is they do it to us anyway. But I've got some sympathy with that view and that they're representing not just independent supporters, they're representing the other half of the population who do want to be in Westminster and they do want their voice to be heard. Um, so I think our MPs have got to be canny about that. They've got to represent the people they represent, whether they voted for them or not. Do you think, though, that the Tory MPs that we send to Westminster consider that they're representing the people who want independence? I don't. I think you're absolutely right, and I don't think they do. And I don't think the Labour MP or the Labour MPs that we've got now will see themselves necessarily as representing independence voters either. But I think we've got to be better than that. And of course, there are many more of us than there are of them. So it would be a a bigger disenfranchisement if we walked away. But, you know, back to that resolution that that the few of us that are in Believe in Scotland Steering Group who are SNP members put together, it wasn't a Believe in Scotland resolution. It was definitely an SNP members uh, resolution. But we wanted them to withdraw two days a week and to move around Scotland holding constitutional conventions backed up by MPs. Now, the MPs would tell us that it would be really hard to manage that because of 
commissions that they're in or commissions that yeah. they chair or whatever else. But I suppose, you know, there comes a point where they have to put Scotland, a bit, a bit of Scotland first. But you can withdraw your goodwill and your, your discretionary time without actually withdrawing altogether. Yeah. An alternative position could be administer the, con- the, the commissions if you feel that's where the work does, but don't go into Westminster then, you know, and make a choice. But I do think that they would be in a best, the best place to support a convention. It would be such a visible thing to be happening, especially that suggestion about hold them round the, a couple of days a week and hold them in different parts of the country. The optics of that, the kind of imp, the visual impact of that happening. They've just done the travelling cabinet from Inverary and people were commenting what a much better discussion that was because it was between ministers and the First Minister and ordinary people who were talking about their own issues. Yeah, and that's not new. That's been happening. You know, they've been doing that for a long for a long time going around Scotland, and it's not the first time I've heard it described like that. So presumably it would just be a similar effect, local effect, mm-hmm. but this time it would be a lot more focused on looking for independence, looking for Scotland, what, kind of, what do you want, what do you want in the Constitution, what do you want us to do now? So I, I think that's a real runner. But just going back to what you said, Jackie, about don't wait till after this next general election. Okay, I mean, it's not too long away. I mean, it's be within a year, probably, won't mm-hmm. it? So it's not like it's massively ahead. But that's a year missed when we could get it up and running. We talked to Greg Makara, who's another SNP member, and um, at that point we didn't have the final resolutions to being, being put forward. So he was just talking generally about, you know, ways in which we could approach this general election. And the question that, you know, the matter of a constitutional convention came up. And he was saying, well, the thing with that is get it set up as soon as possible and get it working and get the, make sure you've got the right people on it. Don't wait until the last minute. So you know, I, I suspect it's not just yourself who's, who's, thinking, who's thinking like that. No, I, I went to one, a French group on the Constitution and it was uh, chaired by Jill Rutter. Um, there was a, a Professor Anand Manton, I think his name was, and Leslie Riddock was in it as well, and Jamie Hepburn and a woman called Jess from the UK in a change in Europe. And they had to put speakers outside. It was They could not get everybody in the room. It was absolutely chocker. And it was a really lively crowd. And he got a bit of a hard time because he used um, phrases that the group didn't like. So we talked about, we don't want another vicious, divisive uh, referendum, yeah. and which lifted the crowd no end. Um, he also <laughs> talked the culture of, of Britain and assuming that Scotland was lumped in there. And it, he got a bit of a roasting for that as well, bless him. But actually the thing that was most important to the room was that this was about participative engagement, not something that was done for us. It was something that was done with us. And the room was very, very, very much in favour of cracking on. And you know, even if we started looking at it in the new year, it would be months yeah. before it was set up because they'd have to get the right people, they'd have to get the right venues, um, they'd have to talk about the frame of reference for it, the, you know, the working rules, all that. Who's funding it? There's all sorts of details that need to be... So if we waited till after the election and the election went our way and the election was next autumn, we'd be talking about 2025 yeah. before we got off the ground. The woman, Jess, pointed out something really significant, that if the vote does go our way and, and we do get the opportunity to start to of a transition period, then there would be so much work to do that this would just be one of many and it would almost be better 
and terms of timetabling to start it before, because we've got energy and time to start to look at that just now. My point of view in the meeting was that if we played this well and we made sure we got a real good cross-section of Civic Scotland, as well as MPs, MSPs and, and whoever else, the great and the good, we could start to win over people who are not there yet. We could start to encourage people that this Scotland that we're talking about could be fairer, could we be more equitable, could be quite a nice place to live, and that they wouldn't be marginalised. So I, I think there's votes in it before the election. Jamie got a, a lot of pushback, and he tried very, very, very hard, not, not least from Leslie, um, to say to the room that he agreed with everything that was being said, but he kept talking about consultation rather than participative engagement. Leslie used her usual examples of Ireland. I understand why she's using them, but they're very, very specific. And then they weren't about the breakup of how some people see the breakup of a union. So there might well have been quite a lot of uh, antipathy in some parts of Ireland about the uh, abortion debate, for instance. But they joined in and, you know, I, I think it could be a real coaxing battle of encouragement and motivation and negotiation to try and get people who are anti-independence to join a constitutional mm, yeah. convention. Sort of mixture of the two. If you have the convention as a sort of vehicle that, that's pulling all the strands together about what, what are all the things we need to be a new country, you could still use citizens' assemblies on specific points and people might be more inclined to engage with them on a particular topic that they care about. I just think it's interesting. Now, if in that fringe meeting, if I was picking you up properly there, if there was a, a difference between talking about this constitutional convention in terms of consulting with it or, or in terms of whether it's actually leading the process, that got me to a, another question, which is, who owns it? Because, you know, if it's a national convention, a consultative convention, it can't be owned by the SNP. And what the actual wording of the amendment is, is that that convention will then be empowered to start and carry through negotiations with the UK government. So that's not something that can be owned by the SNP. And hopefully if we get to that, but it will be started up and taken forward by, by the Scottish government. But it can't be owned by it, really. So that's one reason why I thought that particular amendment was, was a real sea change. And, and in her speech, you know, she said, well, yeah, there'll be MSP, whatever MSPs and MPs want to be part of it, plus Civic Scotland, plus representatives of the smaller independent supporting parties. That's quite a yeah. shift. It is quite a shift, but it's logical when you yeah. think of it, isn't it? I think it's an interesting one because it will have to be sponsored by the Scottish government. Somebody's going to have to get do the work to get it to get it up and running, and somebody's going to have to prepare papers that you know how we get funding and everything else to enable it to happen. That can't just come out the ether. Yeah. And I don't think um, you know there's been umpteen attempts at bringing people together and various other moves to create a lead party for independence in Scotland that have kind of gone to the wall so far. I, I don't know who would sponsor it, get it funded and put it, get it up and running, if not sponsored as a start-up by the Scottish Government. But at that point, it has to be independent and it has to be left. People are going to have to just get on with it then. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's marvellous. But the French group was predominantly about a written constitution and how that should be written. And I think that should be a spin-off from a constitutional convention. And that would be one of the, you know, a number of citizens' assemblies to get it up and running. And I went back and had a look at the last paper that the Scottish Government produced in its Building a New Scotland series. 
and um, the Constitution was paper four, I think. And actually, when you read that, it's much, much, much more given about the expectations that it would be delivered by the people of Scotland rather than the SNP or the Scottish Government. Um, I'm still pulling my way through the 64 pages, but it is much, much more about how is it created. And they, they give a framework, like almost interim, that can be a bit of a, an Aunt Sally, can be picked apart or built on. The bit that's missing is, okay then, how are you going to do this? Jackie had more thoughts on the draft constitution. The draft constitution that Mike Russell was working on, has that disappeared now then, or is that forming the basis for these well, discussions? I, I think that, I mean, that is still what it always was, which is a piece of paper, quite a long piece of paper. You know, that, it was only ever the point where it was left was a piece of paper and then something has to happen to that piece of paper. Even before John Cherry's amendment about the Constitutional Convention, in the main resolution there is, you know, one of the things that will happen immediately after um, we win the election is that we'll start consulting on a written constitution. So my assumption is you start with that draft one that's already been done, which, yeah, it was a small, it was a limited number of people but it was a lot of work that went into it, and it's by no means perfect. It can certainly be improved on, but that would be a, a certain off point. It won't be the end result. The end result will be better than that. I suppose a, a constitutional convention, that can be one of its jobs. And actually, that could start happening next year. Well, the, the paper four that the Scottish government produced um, a few months back, that built on the work that Mike Russell and, and Elliot Bulmer and various other people. So that brought that together and was informed by it, so it hasn't been lost. No. The question for the, the group, the, the French group, was a really interesting one, though. It was, do they want that, or do they want a blank sheet of paper to start from scratch? And maybe look at all the options, which would include other people's constitutions, and include the work that's been done so far. Or do they want a framework to use as a bit of an Aunt Sally and pick apart? Leslie Riddock can talk for herself, but one of the things that she was saying is that there are quite creative things being done in constitutions across the world now. For instance, I think she said it was Iceland's. Yeah, they gave the, the land rights so that the land have the equivalent of human rights in its, own, in its own right. You know, so things that we might not think of. But So even that's a dead interesting debate that could happen in a citizens' assembly, couldn't it? Yeah, eventually it'll have to go through a citizens' assembly. Elliot Bulmer is an expert. He's already taken into account all the kind of other, you know, innovative ideas that are that are present in more recent constitutions. Seems a shame to put that aside and say, let's start from scratch. I mean, that's what I think, anyway. The interesting bit about the framework and the bit of the work that's already been done, it makes sure all our rights, accountabilities and responsibilities are in there so we don't miss them. So, you know, even if it's not used for anything else other than a fact check, you know, have we managed this? Have we got this covered? Have we got that covered? Have we got that covered? At its worst, that would be useful, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. The Scottish Government paper, the document, the 64 pages, <laughs> is, is quite a good read. It's all the intentions are in there that we would want it to be. They're taking a position of not starting from scratch. This is the work that's already been done. Yeah. The other thing is, you know, the day after independence, you don't want the country to be in a kind of hiatus with nothing yet in place about human rights and how the laws work. There's lots of things in that draft constitution, but the kind of very, the basis of it is exactly that. You know, that it might be a stopgap, 
for a while, but that's necessary, actually. I think in terms of like me as an ordinary member of the public, imagine how it would feel on the first day of a Scottish Parliament and the first piece of legislation they enact as our constitution. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We'd be there at Holyrood. And, you know, having the opportunity to write how the future of your country... Yeah. ...as you lead up to that work, that's dead exciting. You know, how often in life would anybody get the opportunity to sit with a pen and say, this is the future of Scotland, this is what we are going to look like? I can't imagine why you wouldn't get excited about that. (laughs) No, and why you would vote no to the opportunity to design your own country is beyond me, absolutely. Simon had thoughts on the additional powers to Holyrood. The amendment that I supported that was put forward by Tommy Shepherd and supported by the SNP Trade Union Group and others said that if we get the majority of seats in Scotland at the general election, which under the first-past-the-post system means that you have won in those terms, then we go to the UK government and say, now is the time to transfer the powers to Scotland to decide our own future. Something, incidentally, that is supported by trade unions and by the STUC generally in Scotland and by much of society, even bits of it that don't support actual independence, they still think the Scottish people should be able to decide democratically. But alongside that, to also ask for the return of powers over financial and economic instruments which actually enable us to start to make the Scotland we want to see in the future. And I think the connection between those powers and the power to democratically decide is the absolutely essential one that we have to to make in the minds of the Scottish people in all the campaigning we do, not just around the the, the general election, but more generally uh, as we move forward together. All the things that were discussed at the conference, the only one that I thought, oh yes, let's do that, was the Constitutional Convention, because it's something different and something that you could see would be wider than the SNP, would be wider than the Scottish Government, and would actually be something that Westminster wouldn't approve of but couldn't stop us doing. And I think there's something about challenging them that needs to happen. I mean, I I take your point about we don't know what they're going to say. I I would be willing to put a huge amount on the fact they will say no and and wouldn't bat an eyelid in doing so, whichever variety is in power. But if we just accept that, then we're condoning that view and that there has to be something that people can get behind and I think the one thing about Scots is tell us we can't do something and we really really want to do it so you know some kind of challenge or something exciting or something a bit more outside the norm I feel a need for that. The excitement can come from a vision of a much better Scotland, really. And I think that, therefore, we we need perhaps to focus around the, the four, five, six things that a vast number of people in Scotland want to see. People want to be able to see secure public services, a strong national health service, decent, well-paid jobs, a green future for us and our children, and we have vast renewable resources to do that on. And also people want to be able to see locally that they can influence the way things are decided. So local democracy becomes important. You know, boring stuff like the reform of, of local government finance is tied to who takes decisions and how they're taken and how they affect our lives. So actually what I want to see us do, and by us I don't just mean the SNP, I mean the independence 
movement more widely in dialogue with others. And for me, that means very much dialogue with trade unions and the trade union movement in Scotland, which has been growing considerably in uh, recent months. I want to see a, a conversation setting out a really positive vision for Scotland, acknowledging some of the things that we're struggling with at the moment and the limits of the powers of devolution and setting out a transformative vision and the case for more powers. And I think it's that that begins to persuade people that independence is an important factor. It's for a lot of people, it isn't something that stands on its own. It feels a bit abstract. No. It feels like jam tomorrow. So the other thing that's very important is the performance of the Scottish government. And I think the Scottish government has done a number of good things over, over the years but it's tending towards uh, great caution at the moment to small amounts of money addressing issues, but not perhaps getting to the core of them. We don't have a joined up green industrial strategy. We don't have a really joined up uh, anti-poverty strategy, though child payments, as we've seen, uh, have made a significant difference. So some things the government has done have been good, but I think we need to be much bolder on tax. We do need to, to grasp the issue of local government reform and the reform of local government finance. We actually have to be able to demonstrate in the way that the parties of independence govern when they get power at the Scottish Parliament that we're, we're, we're ambitious and wanting to do things. And then we have to show people that actually more powers are needed. And I would like to see every time the Scottish Government sets a budget for it also to set an indicative budget as to what more it could do with the powers and some of the costs associated with those powers, of course, that come from independence, so that people begin to see independence weaved into the future that they want for themselves, their families, their communities and their children. This Liz on the possibility of Labour in Westminster. What would you like yourself to see happening, Liz, between, say, now and the next general election, which looks like it's going to be next year and looks like it's going to be pretty overwhelmingly pro-Labour? Yes, I do the social media for our SNP uh, Facebook and Twitter. And my take on it is, and I think this is the message that we need to get out to people, is Labour are a Brexit-supporting party. If you're in Scotland and you want to rejoin the EU at some time in the future, only a vote for the SNP is going to get you away from the UK and potentially back into the EU. From what I've heard, I think that is one of the messages that will be uh, pushed a lot by the SNP for the general election. The other thing I think that they will be pushing is a lot of the policies or benefits that's come through having the SNP in government in Scotland like your free prescriptions, eye tests, childcare, bus travel, the list goes on and on and on. Under a Labour administration, Keir Starmer's rolling back faster than a man in shark-infested waters about all his progressive policies. Now, you can understand why he's not wanting to make a lot of commitments, because basically the UK economy is bust. That's another good point for independence. They said an independent Scotland's economy would be bust in however many days. The UK economy will probably never recover, in my opinion. So all the arguments saying, oh, stick with the UK, it's got broad shoulders, it's a safe economy, that's gone. The pension thing's gone. So I'm hoping that there's going to be a lot of punchy, short, like people 
pay attention to short slogans. They don't want screeds and screeds of detailed information. So what we need is short, punchy things that will appeal to voters and make them realise that, well, basically, whatever happens, if Labour get in, we could be controlled by the Tories again in five years' time. The only way for Scotland to get the government it truly wants is through independence. So all these kind of themes, I think, will be very important. Simon also had some thoughts on Labour in power. The forthcoming general election will not be a de facto referendum. But what we have to decide is that we need to frame that core commitment to independence in terms of a transformational vision for Scotland, a better economic, social and environmental future for all the people of Scotland. I think we have to occupy the space that Labour is vacating almost on a daily basis at the moment, and Labour is going to be the big threat to the SNP and to the independence cause, I think, you know, in terms of, of, of that coming up in electoral politics at the general election. So I think how we handle that has still yet to be uh, anywhere near finalised because the terrain is emerging. The election could, I think, be any any time between April and probably October next year, really. So what do you say to, well, you know what they'll say? They'll just say no. That I, they being UK government, who probably that'll be Labour, but, um, you know, whoever knows. It might be a miracle and we might still have Sunak there. But what's your response to that? Well, first of all, uh, my response is that in politics, anyone who says they know exactly what's going to happen is usually proved wrong in, in the long run. <laughs> um, I, I think clearly if it was the Tories, uh, we, we can be absolutely sure that it would be a no to everything. But it's l unlikely to be, I think, a Tory government coming out of the next general election. It might be a, a majority Labour government. It could actually be a minority Labour government. Who knows? Maybe the SNP and others will have have an influence on it. Keir Starmer has doubled down on unionist rhetoric and a refusal to recognise the democratic right of the people of Scotland to determine their future and said that he won't in a, any circumstances deal with the SNP. Political reality may actually deal him a different hand to that and uh, as we've already seen, I mean since he's broken pretty well all the promises he made when he was elected leader of the Labour Party, we shouldn't be terribly surprised if the things that he says uh, affirmedly now modifying the wind, shall we say, um, if he gets into 10 Downing Street. So politics is a lot less certain than just being able to say, oh, they'll simply say no. But the likelihood is that that, that could well happen. But of course, the, the difference is that if people in Scotland have seen not only that we're being refused the right to determine our own future, but also that we can't levy windfall uh, and corporate taxes against companies making huge amounts of money and taking money out of the public purse and out of people's pockets. If they see that we don't have powers to, to, to determine our own uh, employment situation, to, to grant visas for people coming into the country, which we, we very much need in, in certain areas. If people actually see all of that, it emphasizes even more strongly why we need those powers because they're being denied and they have a big impact. So it's got to be part of a wider political campaign. And going back to what I said right at the beginning, we have to face the difficult reality that at the moment we have not persuaded a majority of people in our own country to back independence, and therefore there isn't a credible path to it. So are they optimistic about the future? Here's Liz. 
there was a lot said in that debate about we have to stop talking about how we're going to do it. We need to start talking about why. So are you feeling optimistic about us eventually now being able to go ahead and, and, and get the job done? Like, as I say, I was in the minority of people that were there that did back the alternatives. But once all the amendments had been voted on, either accepted or rejected, there was then the final vote on the FUMSA and Stephen Flynn resolution as amended. And there wasn't a hand that didn't go up in the hall because at the end of the day, it's the majority have all decided that's what they want now. And now it's up to us to get, get behind it and do what we can do and just stick together. Um, there's no point in the SNP arguing amongst themselves. In my opinion, you get enough arguments from unionist parties. So as far as I'm concerned, united we stand, divided we will fall. And how is Simon feeling about the future? I very much hope that the SNP trade union group, working with other trade unionists, can help create some good conversations within the trade union movement about that question I identified earlier, which is, where does power need to lie in order for transformation to take place? We have to move it step by step forward. And I think that's the kind of pathway that was beginning to be articulated at that conference. But I think the answer has to be a more collaborative and more deliberative form of politics. It has to be a rejuvenating vision for the future of Scotland, which needs to be an inclusive one. And it has to be reframing independence in terms of the things that matter to people in their daily lives. The the proof of the pudding has to be in the eating, and that starts now. So to take a practical example, the SNP is now twice called as a party for a national assets-based renewables energy company to begin to be able to invest in the renewable future that is our future. I mean, Scotland, you know, has massive, massive resources and they're absolutely vital for us. Now, at the moment, the Scottish government's being very coy about that and said, well, it can't really do it because it doesn't have the powers to do it. As a matter of fact, Labour in Wales are starting that process. We can start now. Commonweal and others have spelt out the mechanisms. Trade union group within the SNP will continue to spell out the mechanics of a just transition, a green industrial strategy, a strategic state-led company to help move that forward. And we're urging the Scottish government actually to to come on board with the party, I think, in that direction and offer that kind of transformative vision. People see something happening and they like what's happening. Then you can turn around to them and say, look, we've been able to get this far, but to get further, this is why we're talking about independence. It's not some abstract idea. It's, It's about how power gets into the hands of people so that we can have the future that we want together. We'll give the last word on this topic to Jackie. I'm quite optimistic, not necessarily thinking that the next general election is going to springboard us to independence, but I think then I'm optimistic that the the next general election will springboard us to where we need to be for the Holyrood election to get us our independence. I'm also really excited about the amount of, clearly the amount of negotiation that was done and how that bit of the process was dealt with before conference, you know, bringing people together, um, agreeing on stuff before you got there so that there wasn't a bun fight. I mean, I thought that was fabulous. And I really liked what Hamza said. Right, we've done the process now. That's it. It's finished. We now do the why. Why Scotland Mm -hmm. and why not Scotland? That was really impressive. I felt, 
you know, that he put his marker down. He got what he needed to get through. The whole place was behind him. It was a there was a big crowd. And he said, right, we've done that now. Let's not talk about process any longer. Let's go on with it. So I'm, I'm excited to see what that will look like. Big thanks to our guests for coming on and joining us and sharing their thoughts. Obviously, a, a very important conference in terms of the way forward. So we're going to carry on with a, another podcast in this series in which we will ask some people in to come and talk to us about what they think of that strategy. But this time it will be people who are not members of SNP. They may be members of other parties or uh, maybe Yes Active. So that will be out sometime in December, we hope. Some of them might have very different views on the way forward as well. So it'll be very interesting to hear what they've got to say. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget, there's a new podcast episode out every Friday. Catch you later. Bye now.